And I'm just going to read from Judges chapter 21, just start verse 1. <clears throat> the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who had failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah should certainly be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for their brothers, the Benjamites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left since we have taken an oath as, uh, by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? When they asked which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah, they discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Rimon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And then from verse 23, there's a kind of something going on there where they managed to arrange things so that the rest of the Benjamites can steal a wife and a ruse and we read that so this that is what the Benjamites did when the girls were dancing each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them at that time the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans each to his own inheritance in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Let's just come and pray together. <coughs> Father, we pray, Lord, that as we come to this passage that seems so difficult and challenging in so many different ways, we pray that you'll just help us to understand it and to take out the points that are relevant and then pray that you'll help us to apply each of these to our lives individually and also to our nation at this time in our history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some time ago I came across a story that I'd really long forgotten about. It was a tragedy that happened in Tenerife on the 3rd of April 1977. Two 747s uh, collided on the airport runway resulted in the death of 575 people. And the, the main facts that, that lead up to this tragedy, they are clear. 
that the, the main airport in Las Palmas had to be closed due to a terrorist bombing. And this meant that a, a second airport, known then as Los Rodeos, now as Tenerife North, it meant that this was, was very busy, crowded, at an exceptionally busy flight schedule. With all of this leading to planes queuing up to take off and having to use a runway to taxi rather than the usual taxiway. And then, to top it off, a sudden fog came down. At this moment, the, the pilot of a KLM plane, without clearance from the control tower, began his takeoff. But on this runway, a Pan Am plane was taxiing back. And the KLM pilot, when he saw this, he actually tried to take off before reaching the required speed, but he didn't make it. And the result was a truly catastrophic disaster. Still, I believe, although I'm open to be uh, put right on this, still the deadliest accident in aviation history. Now, there's still today a, a bit of debate about why he did, what he did, but what is undeniable is that the root cause of this accident lay in a pilot doing what seemed best to him at the time, what he thought was right. This, though, was in total contradiction of one of the basic lessons that a pilot is taught. That in an air traffic control zone, you don't do what seems best in your eyes, best to you. No, you do what the control tower tells you to do. But this pilot did what seemed right to him. Surrounded by fog, he did what was right in his own eyes and the result was disaster. This, though, really, I believe, is a picture of what was happening spiritually and morally in the life of the people of Israel, of God's people, during the time of the judges. For that, that last verse of this book is a repeat of the statement that, that I think really defines what the book of Judges is all about. 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. For there was no human king in Israel at this time, and neither were God's people living in submission to their God as their king, their sovereign Lord. With the result, as we've seen again and again, as we've walked our way through this book of Judges, and with this certainly being the case here in this final chapter of chapters, the result being disaster, repeated disaster. And you know, this is what is happening also, I believe, in our day. For by and large, our society today has totally rejected God, has rejected the very concept of there being a sovereign, all-powerful God. We've gone way beyond the Israelites to the point where we have actually rejected the concept of a sovereign God. And so also, as part and parcel of that, we've rejected the concept of there being such a thing as absolute unchanging truth. We see if there's no such thing as a sovereign God, then how else, who else could ever set such a standard of truth? So you see, today, everything is relative. 
Truth changes according to the situation, changes according to your perspective, even your likes and dislikes. The slogans of today really run along the lines, don't they? If it's true for you, if it works for you, if it makes you happy, if it gives you pleasure, then it's true. Just do it. You see, we've gone way beyond the Israelites who ignored the truth to reach the point where we now deny that there is such a thing as truth in an absolute sense. And the result of this has been unmitigated disaster. For as our society no longer has any real understanding of right and wrong, as we've no moral compass anymore to guide us through life, well, so because of this, the moral framework of our society has really fallen apart. Fallen apart. You know, Paul in, in 1 Timothy 4.2 tells us that it's possible for an individual who sins repeatedly to lose any conscious sense of right and wrong. He talks about those whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And there have been notable individual examples of this. Like, for instance, the man who once said, I have spent the best part, the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures. And all I get is abuse and the existence of a hunted man. Who said that? Al Capone. And then we have the infamous Mille Massacre in Vietnam, where it's estimated that over 100 Vietnamese civilians were killed by American soldiers, and the vast majority of these being women, children, including babies and the very elderly. And when the bodies were found, they bore evidence of abuse and torture, even of mutilation. And only one man was ever put on trial for this, William Calley. Lieutenant William Calley. And during his trial, he was reported at one point sitting in his cell and saying, it couldn't be wrong or I would feel remorse about it. Now, I believe it is possible for a society to reach the same stage and that this is just about where we are now. For we live in a society today where the mainstream opinion seems to be that just about anything goes. There are very few taboos anymore. Any few, very few things that are recognised as intrinsically wrong. But let's then just look now at this final series of incidents in Judges. At this story here, which itself is a frightening account of a nation in a state of moral and spiritual breakdown. And let's look at the lessons and principles that we can draw out from this and that we can apply to our life today. So let's begin then first with a sickening story. And it really is truly a sickening story. And it all begins with a breakdown in relationship between a Levite and his concubine. With a concubine being really at the time, a kind of lesser wife. Someone who a man was in a committed relationship with, but not to the extent of a formal marriage. At this time, this could include something like a woman who'd been sold into slavery, say, to pay her family's debt. Or someone whose father could not afford to pay the kind of dowry that would be required 
for marriage. Now, whether either of these scenarios really fit here, or the reason for the status of this relationship was something less common, well, we can't be sure. Though I would say that the generous hospitality this woman's father lavished on her Levite partner would suggest that whatever the reason, it wasn't financial. Anyway, there was a, a breakdown in this relationship. Now, some translations suggest that this was because this woman committed adultery, and that's the line the NIV takes. Or in other translations, that she left this man because she was angry with him. Now, I want to say the fact that in chapter 19, 13, it says that after four months, he went to try to persuade her to return. Well, that suggests maybe something more of a, of a quarrel, that he'd done something to hurt her or offend her. And so after giving her time to cool down, and think about it, four months, it must have been some argument. But anyway, he goes back to her father's house to try and win her back. And apparently she accepts his apology. Her father was delighted. I don't know, maybe she was a high maintenance girl, who can tell? And there then follows three days of feasting to celebrate. And on the fourth day, the Levite decides to go home, but he's prevailed upon to stay for another day. And on the fifth day, he makes another attempt, but traditional, customary Eastern hospitality means that it's actually almost evening before he can escape from his father-in-law. But what this means is that the Levite, his servant and his concubine, it means that as they leave, that they're in an awkward place as night draws near. And it's then time to, to seek shelter from the wild animals and the even wilder men, the bandits, that roamed around the countryside. His servant, he suggests, going to Jebus, which later became Jerusalem, and which actually is the nearest town. But you see, at this time, Jebus, Jerusalem, was still a non-Jewish, was still a Gentile city. And ironically, tragically, the Israelite, the Levite, sorry, decides not to go there as he feels that he will be safer among his Israelite brothers. So he travels a, a few miles further to get to Gabeah and straight away he goes to the city square. The city square, which in a city of that time was the, the business and the social centre. And he obviously expected to be offered hospitality and you know he had every right to do so because in that culture and even right up to today in Jewish and, Ab uh, and Arab society hospitality is seen as a sacred duty. It's not something that certain people do because they're nice and they're good at it. It's not something that's extended just to close friends and family. No it is your duty before God to offer hospitality to anyone in need. Eventually, though, someone does offer hospitality. An old man who originally was, was native to the Levite's home territory of Ephraim, but is now living in Gabeah. He offers hospitality. And there are one or two interesting little sidebars, actually, to this. First, when asked questions about his journey, one extra detail that the Levite adds is in verse 18, now I am going to the house 
of the Lord. Now that could mean either that he was genuinely going to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice in thanksgiving for his reconciliation with his partner, or it could be that what we actually have here is an example of this Levite's deviousness. That he's suggesting a religious purpose for his journey in order to give himself a better chance of being given the night's shelter that he needs. Now, given the kind of despicable character that this man later reveals himself to be, I actually think that deviousness is the most likely reason. And then this old man who generously offers the kind of hospitality expected, who rejects the Levite's offer of providing for himself on basically a self-catering kind of basis, in his offer of hospitality, he then adds an interesting detail. In his comment in verse 20, only, he says, don't spend the night in the square. Sends an ominous note, doesn't it? And when you add this to the fact that there were no other offers of hospitality, well, it suggests, hence, doesn't it, that, that Gabeah wasn't a particularly safe place to be as actually proved to be the case. For in the middle of their meal, men of the town began pounding on the door. And when it says pounding here, it means pounding. The underlying sense of the word that's used suggests people who are throwing themselves against the door in an attempt to break it down. Now it says that the men doing this were wicked men. They certainly were. But let's not let that delude us into thinking that this here was some kind of rogue minority. Because you see, we don't know how many there were actually in this group. But what we do know is neither that the leaders of the town nor any other members or men of this town, none of them tried to stop this. So they were either part of this crowd, it was a big crowd, or they just let it. Happened. And that gives us, I think, a clear indication of the kind of moral collapse that had taken place in the city of Gabeah. <laughs> uh, now, particularly, as what's made clear here, is that their purpose in trying to break down this door is homosexual rape. Now, that was something that was absolutely unthinkable in Jewish culture. And it would seem that, that even the Levite's host, who knows the kind of town he lives in, is, is taken aback by this. Because in verse 23, the fact that these men are, are prepared to go so far, he says, don't be so vile. Yes, it seems that though he feared for the safety of strangers in Gabeah, that still he'd not expected this. And it may be speculation, maybe part of the explanation for this kind of extreme behaviour is that the crowd had felt offended. They'd felt hurt that an incomer to their community should offer the man the hospitality they'd refuse. They didn't want to do it, but they'd be shown up by this man. But, you know, as we go on, this man's response to this appalling request for them surely amazes us. He offers to send his own daughter and this unnamed concubine in the Levite's place. 
What that illustrates is actually just how lowly regarded women actually were in the ancient world. These men, though, want none of it. They want none of it. But the Levite, though, he forestalls any further negotiation by grabbing his concubine and pushing her out of the door. No wonder she fell out with him, eh? What a hero. What a charmer. And the next morning, after she's been abused all night, as he finds her crumpled up in the doorway, he callously tells her, get up, basically, Get up, we've got to get out of here. But as a result of the abuse, she's dead. And it's at this point that he starts to play the outraged lover. Taking her body home and then dividing it into 12 parts to be taken throughout the land to the tribes of Israel to witness to what has been a despicable act. Now that might seem to us incredibly gruesome and even hard-hearted. But this was a dramatic, though just about, acceptable gesture at this time. Now this sets off a whole series of events. Because the rest of Israel are outraged. And they look for the tribe of Benjamin, of which the, Gibeon, the people of Gibeah form a part of. They look for the tribe of Benjamin to give them up. So Israel raised an army of about 4,000 to attack them. And Benjamin, 26,000, to defend themselves. But Israel then made three decisions that despite that show that despite doing the right thing here, yet still they too were living far from God. That they too, in a lesser way, were doing what was right in their own eyes. For first of all, they go into battle against Benjamin without first seeking the Lord. And so twice in the hill country of Benjamin, that country that Benjamin knows so well, that's their home territory, Israel suffers defeat, losing 40,000 men. And only then, in desperation, do they turn to God, who gives them the victory. They then kill all but 600 Benjamites. They destroy their towns, killing everything and everyone in those towns. Men, women, children, animals, everything. Only 600 men escape. Then they make their next bad decision. They take an oath. Again, without seeking the Lord. They take an oath that none of them will ever give his daughter in marriage to a man of the tribe of Benjamin. But you see, time passes by. Feelings begin to subside. And they begin to regret what they did in the heat of the moment. For they recognize that this will mean the extinction of one of the tribes of Israel. But you know, I love the way that with weeping, they then cry out to God. Verse 21, verse 3. They cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? I love that. I mean, they did this without seeking God. And now they're asking him why it happened. I love it. It'd be even funnier if the same thing wasn't all too common today. Then their next bad decision 
was trying to find a way out of this situation. For they then decide to massacre all the inhabitants of an area that had not sent men to fight with them, sparing only the unmarried virgins. But this then leaves Benjamin still short of 200 wives. So they come up with a ruse, somebody might call it a cunning plan, to try and keep up the pretense of their vow. They allow the remaining men of Benjamin to kind of steal wives. They knew what was going on, but to steal wives at a feast in Shiloh. Now, you see, all in all, this truly is the most tragic catalogue of almost every human vice, every human failure. Cruelty, cowardice, deception and trickery is all found there in this story. As every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the story. But as we're now going to see, move on to see, though this is an extreme example, yet this isn't a one-off. No, it's just another example, I believe, of a predictable pattern. A predictable pattern. A pattern that begins, as we've already said, with spiritual sin. That's where it starts. With a people who, though they may be paid lip service to God, yet who are not in any meaningful way living with God as Lord of their lives. Living with God in charge in every area of their lives. That's where it begins. Then it moves on to sexual sin. Ranging here from a man's keeping of a concubine to homosexual rape and then the most, or intended homosexual rape and then the most awful act of rape. And finally it ends with the loss of any kind of sense of the worth and the sacredness of life. As here a woman is abused, murdered, her body desecrated and then in an act of wildly excessive revenge an entire tribe of the people of God is almost wiped out with another community being similarly treated in order to provide wives for the remnant left of the first massacre. It's incredible, it's ridiculous. But so on and on it goes. It's incredible. But don't we see the same pattern repeating itself in our own day, don't we? I mean, as far as spiritual sin is concerned, well, to begin with, the church doesn't come off particularly well here. Because though the, the picture of seeking actively to live under Christ's lordship is certainly varied, there are those who do. Yet it would surely have to be said that as we look at the church in the wider sense, across the board, then it doesn't come out well here. There's been a lot of capitulation in recent days to the standards of the world. There's been an increasing degree of denying that sin is sin in order to please the wider opinion in the society of our day. However, moving away from the church, this society, our nation, has surely moved about as far away from God as it's possible to do so, short of declaring ourselves an atheist state. For as I said, or suggested at the beginning, our society has moved on in recent days from ignoring God to denying that there is a God. That is a God in any kind of worthwhile sense. 
That is a God who sets standards of absolute truth. A God that sets standards that we're obliged to live by. And as for the, the next step in this pattern, this turning from God leading to sexual sin of an ever more degraded nature. Well, who could deny that we have far surpassed even the men of Gebeah with regard to this? But I mean, I want to make it clear, I'm absolutely against the persecution of, of homosexual individuals. I am. But you know, we've now reached the stage in our country where at the last election, Tim Farron, leader of the limo, Liberal Democrats, a committed Christian, was actually bullied by the media into saying homosexuality is not a sin. When after the election he admitted he'd been bullied by the media into this and then withdrew it, he immediately resigned as part of that statement because he knew he would be hounded out of office if he didn't. You see, we're at the stage where homosexuality has now to be seen as an equally valid and a desirable life choice. And simply to say, just to say, that it would be better for a child to be brought up in a stable traditional family with a mother and a father just to say that brings wrath upon you. I know that because by accident I did just that in an online reply. It's something that I read. I thought I was replying to an individual. I actually put it out to a whole website and I got worldwide abuse. People from the United Kingdom, Norway, United States, South Africa, they all had something to say to me. All of them had something to say. So the question is, what do we do in the face of this? How do we respond to this? How do we as God's people speak into this situation? Well, I think there are certain things that we need to do. I believe that there are. First of all, I believe that we need to challenge the godless mindset of our day. We need to make people aware of the fact that the where we're at as a nation just now. It didn't just happen. It hasn't just been an accident. It's been something that has deliberately been set in motion by the fact that we have rejected God. That when we reject God, there are no absolutes anymore. And where we are is a demonstration of that. So we need to challenge. But also, I believe that we need to do that with humility. We need to do it with humility because lots of people out in the world, they'll say, you know, you're talking about this absolute truth, but look where absolute truth and believing you're right has sometimes got religion. Look what happened on a large scale with the Crusades. Many people in the Islamic world still feel rage about the Crusades. Look what's happened in different um, events in, in the fairly recent past, the the Jim Jones thing, David Koresh, where people believing that they knew what God was saying led to horrific acts. And we could go on. People today in the Islamic world where there's you know, extreme Islamic law applied, people look at what happens, the treatment of people, people like homosexuals, the way that they're you know, basically put to death in the most horrific ways. People look at that and say, you know, if that's truth that believes in God, I don't want anything to do with that. They also look at the jihadist terrorism that's increasingly part of life today where we're just waiting for the next act. And they say, hey, listen, these are people who believe 
that there is a God and he sets truth. And look what they do to try and enforce that truth on others. So we've got to be humble here. We've got to share what we believe to be true. We've got to try and, and peop let people see that the truth that we're sharing is a different truth, that it's from a loving and a gracious God. We've got to be humble, be willing to admit we were wrong. We've got to persuade. We're not trying to force society to take our point of view. We're just saying this is a better way. And we need to do that. We need to do it in humility. And finally, I believe, we need to proclaim to the world that there is a God. We need to proclaim to the world the nature of this God. That he is a sovereign God. That he is a holy God. That he is a mighty God. But that he's also a God who is mighty in love. We need to tell people, listen, we're not trying to persuade you to join us in some kind of religion that's all about rules and regulations that restrict you. Rather, we want to bring you into a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and with a Father who loves you. With a Father who the direction and guidance and commandments he gives, he doesn't give to restrict us. He gives them in order to protect us. He gives them in order that we might be a people who are fulfilled and blessed, living in a society where the weak and the needy are cared for and loved. That's who God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to be a people who do whatever is right in our own eyes. He wants us to be a people who seek to see his will fulfilled in our land. By God's grace, may we today be that kind of people. May we be truly his people. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the, the truth of your word. We want to thank you for the way that it just meets us right where we are, challenges us, fits right into where we are as a society, challenges us as individuals. Lord, we pray, help us today to respond to what you're saying. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.